Hello and welcome back to episode four of Be Bougie, Be True, Be You. I'm Charlotte Jones. This weekend, I had the best weekend because I got to behave as if I was about 16 and I loved it. <laughs> so I'll set the scene, okay? So my friend's dad is away on holiday. He asked her to house it to look after the animals. And another friend and I, we were like, you know what? We'll come keep you company. We'll come and hang out. So we had a few glasses of wine. We had so much junk food. And when it got just about late enough and we'd had just about enough wine, for the first time since I was honestly about 13 maybe, we created a dance routine, all of 10 seconds, and it fell apart very quickly. But I honestly haven't done that since I was a kid. I know everybody's doing it on TikTok and things like that, but I haven't plucked up the courage to do one yet. And I feel like when you get to have those carefree evenings and you're laughing till you're crying and you don't even know what you're laughing at, it was just the best. So let me move on to this week's episode. This episode is with Bryn Lucas. He's my special guest this week. Bryn Lucas is a TV and radio presenter. He's been in the industry for a really long time. He's got so much experience. He really knows his stuff. And he has some funny, interesting, insightful stories to share with us all about rejection, how he handles being in this industry, how he got into this industry in the first place and how he deals with self-doubt. I learned a lot from him and I had a lot of laughs as well. So here we go. You're listening to Be Bougie, Be True, Be You with Charlotte Jones, the podcast to chat about a little bit of anything and everything. Bryn Lucas, hello. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am, I'm all right. I'm sitting on the floor in the top room of my house because it's the best room for audio. So I'm just currently chilling out on the floor. So I'm quite happy. Are you struggling though? It's a little bit hot today. I am quite warm. Yeah, <laughs> It is the warmest room of the house. But it's all right though, you know. I'm a bit of a floor dweller, so I don't mind being where I am. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm excited because we are both in the same career. We both work as presenters in TV and radio. And I just love to get to know more. I love to chat to people about what goes on, what we feel, because it's a very diverse career. It's not something that goes in a straight line. So I'll get stuck right in and say you've had a wide range of presenting roles. That's from being a regular presenter of Super Casino on Channel 5. You've also covered a number of motorsport championships, and that includes coverage of Goodwood Festival of Speed. But what is it about presenting that made you want to make this your career? Well, it's uh, that's really interesting question because I didn't ever want to be a presenter. Really? I didn't, yeah, I didn't know what presenting, I knew what presenting was. You know, I saw people on TV doing it, but I didn't have a clue um, and when I was at school I had no interest in presenting but then when I left school when I was thinking what am I going to do when I leave school I remember my careers advisor was absolutely useless and I just hadn't got a clue you know I don't think at the age of 14 or 15 when you're trying to work out what you want to be when you grow up you really know because you don't know who you are you know and so I um, thought right okay what, what am I into well I quite like tv I quite like films and things so I went off and did media studies at college and when I was doing media studies I quite liked the presenting side of things like we did a bit of radio presenting and we did a bit of stuff on camera and I preferred being on camera as opposed to behind the camera or on the mic as opposed to you know working the mic so yeah I kind of 
didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I went around doing a variety of different jobs for quite, quite a long period of time. Lived in South Wales, lived in Bognor Regis, worked at Butlins on a bar. You know, I did all these different things and then went back home to Farnborough. Uh, for two weeks and stayed for, I don't know, five years, seven years, ten years, whatever it happened to be. And I went to a theatre. My mum got me into a local theatre that did some theatre training. Yeah, I quite enjoyed that, the acting side of the thing. I think being at Butlins, it, I saw the performers on stage and thought, you know, I want to do that. So then I went to a theatre school, did a bit of acting, then went to drama school off the back of that. And then in 2000 or 2001, I forget now, I left drama school. That's where it really started for me. I started looking at acting. I, I was an actor. That's what I told people I did. Although the reality, as you know from being a performer, when you're new to it, you spend a lot of time doing things that have nothing to do with performing. I was handing out Diet Coke on train stations as promotion ca- campaigns for, for Coca-Cola. And I did, you know, handing out Amore yogurt to people in Birmingham Bullring, you know. So I did these different things. and But every now and then I'd do an acting job. So I'd say, yeah, I'm an actor. And that went on for years and years and years and years and years. And then in 2008, I saw a job come up on a casting. Um, it wasn't a website back then, just a casting book, magazine, whatever it was. And I sent off for it and I got a screen test and I got offered the job. And that was a blackjack show on Sky. And the second I took that job, I stopped everything else. I was lucky the money that it paid me meant I didn't have to do anything else. I was able to focus really on presenting and I was learning it because I'd never done talk back, had no idea how talking while someone's talking to you would work you know and and I learned it on the job really and I learned blackjack and then I moved from that show onto a roulette show and I did that for about three years we we did a trial on channel five and we got the job and that became super casino as you mentioned at the top well I was on super casino for about 10 years something like that before it, it went off tv in November last year and so about three years in I remember being away on a holiday thinking right when I get back I need to focus on my career because I'd just been doing this one job really and I thought what do I like and motorsport was one of the things I liked and lifestyle in general I liked doing lifestyle outdoorsy stuff and I managed to find a way into Motors TV which was a back then a a digital and Sky channel and I managed to get some presenting gigs on that and it kind of snowballs you know what it's like you get one job and then you meet Barry and Barry knows Simon and Simon knows Phyllis and and they all (laughs) you know and And they go, oh, do you know a presenter? And they go, oh, yeah, I remember Barry telling me, you know, and that's how it worked. And I got more and more jobs. And the more and more jobs I got, the more contacts I had. And it it just built from there. Well, that leads That's the short answer. (laughs) 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 No, I find that so fascinating because I think a lot of people are drawn to TV presenting in particular because they think it's very Mm. glamorous, fun and easy. But I think there is so much more to it and as you were saying as you went on yes you enjoyed being in front of the camera but what really got your career off the ground was finding things that you were interested in and subjects you were passionate about so that kind of in a sense slightly moves away from presenting because that's just wanting to talk about something you really enjoy would you say yeah but I also think that the presenting world and tv nowadays doesn't really ask for presenters they don't really exist now I mean the rain kelly phil schofield these people obviously still exist. And Lorraine Kelly probably came from a journalistic background. In fact, I know she did. So they came from a specific angle. And actually, the people that are in TV now, in the main, are either famous because they were on reality TV and they became a name and therefore they had profile, or they were an expert that became a presenter through the back door. So they were an expert in something and then that got them TV shows. For example, Chris Packham. You know, he's, yeah. a, he's a wildlife presenter but he now fronts very, very big 
wildlife focused and ecologically focused, I suppose, um, TV shows. So for me, being a presenter wasn't really an option because I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. And I thought, yeah, I could be one. But then people don't really want that. They want an expert. And so it was like, okay, so I've got to find something that I, that I like. And I'm not an expert in motorsport. I'm not an expert in, in sport, but I love it. And therefore, hopefully, when I'm at a grid talking to drivers, I'm passionate enough to be the conduit almost between the viewer and the driver. And therefore, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know everything. I'm not the guru. I just am the person that can mediate almost. Yeah. And nowadays, I think it's really, really tough because people, I think, look at TV and they still think it's glamorous. And it's not. It's, there are glamorous elements to it, I suppose. But in the main, it, a lot of it is sitting at home prepping, yeah. researching and uh, reading up on different people, finding out who you need to contact, who you need to speak to, what you're going to do when you're there, looking at schedules. And it's that. It's the bit that when you're on screen, it looks like it's easy. But yes. the reality is it's only easy because you've put the time in that makes it come across as easy. It's interesting you say that because I think people see a five minute segment on any TV show and they think that looks fun and easy, but they don't see the hours of work that go into making that five minute segment. Yeah. And you from a presenting point of view and even from a producing point of view, you'll know how much it takes to to make something work. The the amount of conversations you have before a production, the amount of rehearsals you have before a, a live production they really do impact how good or how bad the outcome is. And you don't often see people drop the ball on TV. And that's a whole skill in itself, to be able to know that something's going wrong and act like everything is totally fine. Yeah, yeah. But something I've realised over the years, I always thought, oh, I know, if I get a really, really high profile, really big job, you know, with a huge production background, a massive production base, it'll all be planned. There'll be nothing that you're ever having to worry about. There'll be nothing that anyone's panicking about. And it's absolute rubbish. Every (laughs) single production that I have worked on, whether it be for ITV, I did the Oxford Cambridge Rugby at Twickenham, and it was a global production. It was on ITV4, so it was going all around the world. We had so many different media outlets taking it. So we had counts that we have to hit as presenters that were going to a global ad break. And then we had to pause before we came back from the ITV coverage ad break. So we had different ad breaks and we had to just pause for two or three seconds. And in that two or three seconds, that would then go to an ad break in a different country. And the amount of juggling, you know, if you're interviewing somebody, as you know, you might have a five minute interview or a three minute interview. It might run to three minutes, 20 or three minutes, 18. And that has an impact on when you hit your ad break. Yeah. So there's all this stuff always going on. You never can really tell, I don't think, from the presenter, if the presenter's doing a good job, that actually there's just this massive panic going on in their ear. And I think that that is where experience comes in and you can only get that that from experience you can only learn how to deal with that without being a rabbit in headlights definitely I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about with being an expert and how that form of presenting has changed because I completely agree with you all the advice you get is always you should be an expert pick a subject do this and as you were saying you're not an expert in motorsports as such you just love it do you feel you Mm. have the same advantage of getting that work if there is somebody that is an expert and what really would you say, make somebody be classed as an expert? The short answer is I don't think it gives me an advantage at all. I think it's a hindrance, probably, that that I'm not an expert. And the reality is that because we're growing up now in a more media-savvy world, former racing drivers, for example, with motorsport, once they've put their crash helmet and their gloves up on the shelf and they're not going to race again, they turn to media to be a pundit. And once they become a pundit, 
they then become a presenter. And they're an expert. You know, the, the old one would be Gary Lineker in football. You know, when Gary Lineker stopped playing football, he didn't. He went on Match of the Day, and then he became the presenter of Match of the Day. And he was terrible for the first four, five, six months of his Match of the Day career. And then he loosened up, and he became more of a personality, and he became warmer and more used to it. And now he is a very, very accomplished presenter. Yeah. So he's an expert in football. But he's an expert and now he presents football. So I think if you have a choice, if you're doing motorsport and you have a choice between somebody who can present and they can hit the cues, they can do it all right and they've got a bit of personality and they know motorsport or somebody who just is good at hitting cues, you would go for the the former, the person who knows the sport. Do you think, OK, I feel like this is a risky question and I mean this in the <laughs> most politest way possible, but I have seen exactly what you mean sometimes where someone maybe isn't naturally a presenter and they get the job over someone that is trained. Do you find that yeah. a frustration or do you understand it? Um, try, to, try to be as politically correct as possible. Yes, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to burn bridges. No, the, the, the honest answer is if somebody does a very good job if they come from a, if we stick to motorsport, because it's an easy one. Yeah. If they come from a motorsport background and they do a very, very good job, then great. They should be given the gig. But if they go on there and they clearly aren't the leader, mm-hmm. they need somebody else to lead the production, then I wish the production companies would stick to a leader as an anchor, the old anchor presenter. If you look at BT Sport, actually, if you look at Formula One, um, Formula One had Jake Humphreys as their main presenter on Channel 4. He owns Whisper Films, who produced the coverage for the Channel 4 Formula One show. Right. He and David Coulthard started this company up with a few other people. And when Jake Humphreys moved to BT Sport to do the football, he still owns Whisper Films. So he's very, very astute as a businessman. And they brought Steve in. Um, Steve Jones, the Welsh guy, um, to do the Formula One coverage. They kept the same style of presenter. Now, having him in that one there, he went in from a very good, I'm not a Formula One driver. I just, I'm going to ask the questions that the audience may want to know. And he took it on very well because he didn't pretend he knew everything. So I think because they took a guy on and he clearly was playing the, I'm going to ask the questions that I think the audience might want to know and I'm not an expert it meant you could almost side with him a little bit so I didn't mind that at all what I do not like is somebody coming from I don't know reality tv who has absolutely no background in any of these things at all but they get the gig because they got profile that is the one thing that really really grinds my gears and I find that with a lot of things you know daytime tv is littered with with reality tv stars yeah and I don't think they would do as good or they don't think they do as good a job as somebody who is a presenter. I just don't. I think if you give a presenter, a good presenter, a topic to talk about, they will be able to talk about it. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said there. And I think sticking with talking about being an expert and uh, maybe just having a passion, I think this ties in very nicely with moving towards self-doubt in this sort of career. Because Mm. have you ever found that self-doubt has affected you throughout your career? Yes and no. I think self-doubt and ego, they go hand in hand. Ego is essentially self-doubt, isn't it? It's it's whether you've got a lot of it or not much of it. And I think certain times in my career, I have been probably a bit cocky. You know, I know everything. And I don't think that made me a better presenter. 
I think a bit of doubt is a good thing. If you're not nervous when you're about to do a live broadcast, probably you're not in the right career. You, know? you yeah. need to be a bit nervous because <laughs> that's what gets you through. The adrenaline really is something to feed off of. But it can become negative if the doubt eats away at you and you end up questioning whether or not you can do it. And there are quite a few occasions in my career where I could probably identify self-doubt as almost ruling. And you hear of stage fright for actors on stage where they literally are terrified now of walking on the stage in front of an audience because they might mess it up. I gave myself a little pep talk a number of years ago. And the reality is that I think that people on TV seem to think they're really important because they're on TV. And actually, it's, you're just lucky. It's yeah. just a, you're really lucky to have got a job that you enjoy doing and have people watching you and hopefully enjoying what you do. And if it all goes wrong, that's the worst thing that's going to happen is it goes a bit wrong. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, the reality is no one's going to die from it, you know. And so that was a really good one for me to overcome self-doubt because I thought, well, if I really mess this up, I just have to laugh it off. And it, and it kind of eased up a little bit because there were times where I was really, really struggling with what if this goes wrong? Am I doing the right thing? Or oh, have I said too much? Have I said too little? Can I talk for 20 seconds? Oh, what if I don't do this? And, and I got so concerned that I was trying to be too precise with everything I was doing. It removed all, it stripped every single part of me away to just this, well, I can hit a 20 second count. Yeah. You know? And that's not, that's no use to anyone, really, because no one's going to watch you if you're if you're dull as, as <laughs> really I had a time when I was on channel five and I criticized big brother and it's a moment that I that sticks with me because it was back in about 2011 2012 maybe and I almost lost my job um, wow. over it and yeah and I criticized I didn't criticize big brother so what happened was channel five bought big brother off of channel four and it was the first year it was on Channel 5. And I made some comments. We got a lot of emails in when I was doing Super Casino asking or demanding for the live feed, the live stream of the, of the Big Brother house. And Channel 5 just weren't doing it. They didn't want it. And so I got, not shirty, I was, I was joking, but I did it very dry, very dry joke, you know. And I was saying, <laughs> it's two o'clock in the morning. All the housemates are going to be asleep right now. So how about I just get on this roulette table and have a little snooze and, I, and you watch me sleep if that's your thing, you know, but, I, <laughs> but that's pretty much what I said. And it got picked up by a radio station and, it, and they switched it all around. So it looked like I did about five or six different bits like this and they switched it around to make it look like I was angry and then I was calming down. Well, the reality was I was very calm and jokey and then I was very dry humour. And from that, I almost lost my job and I really went into quite a dark place almost probably a depression from it because I was so concerned about losing my job my livelihood this is all I had and I was also now losing the ability to be me because I didn't know well what can I do what can I not do and so I really went into this strange I would go back on tv not knowing if I was going to be in that job any longer being terrified of overstepping the mark or getting something wrong because I was being watched very closely by the producers. It really, really hampered me for probably three or four months, you know, maybe even longer than that. So that was a huge self-doubt moment because I doubted whether I could even trust my instincts. Yeah, and how, how did you overcome that? I think time. I think time was a big healer on that one. I also understood what I'd done. Right. And I hadn't... 
I stand by what I what I did. You know, I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> so <laughs> I stand by what I did in that I was joking. And so I don't think I did anything that was terrible. No one was going to be harmed by what I did. It's not like I said something really, really racist or nasty or anything that was going to going to upset people or harm people. I don't want to do that. I don't want to I don't want to upset people. I want to make people, you know, feel welcome <laughs> most most of the time. And so I think when I when I realised what I was doing or what I'd done wasn't as bad as perhaps I was led to believe, I got over it. And Channel 5's response really over, over this two-week period, from to my knowledge from what I was told, was, well, he didn't criticise Big Brother, so he'll be that, so we don't mind. Oh, <laughs> so wow. that was it. Yeah, I, you know, all I did was I... I took the took the the, the uh, I'm not going to say the word but took the Michael out of um, <laughs> the requests we were getting on an email because people were emailing the wrong show asking for something we had no control over and so self-doubt you know interested to know what you come or where you come from from this one as well because I think self-doubt is in every single performer's body. It is. And that's what I find so fascinating because I find you would assume, and yes, of course, there are lots of confident people in this kind of industry, but so many people I have come across are so nervous and doubt themselves and doubt their capabilities. And yet you would think that everybody, they feel like you can do this no problem. And I actually notice it more meeting people in this industry than I do amongst my friends and things like that. I feel like they have a lot more of a relaxed confidence. I don't know if it's to do with the pressure of this career, but there is something where people really do quite often second guess themselves. And I think sometimes unnecessarily, I do all the time. Interviews for me are my biggest thing. And I remember having to do a couple of radio interviews. I think it was Khalid was my first big interview and it was only going to be three minutes, four minutes tops. Mm. And I had to take myself outside. I was so anxious. And it was asking straightforward questions. It was going to be easy. And yeah, the, the doubt I had, I couldn't even listen to myself back for a, a day or so after because I knew I had time before the interview was going out. I had to pluck up the courage just to listen back because I was doubting the whole thing. And it was so unnecessary. When I listened back, it was fine. I was quite happy with it. I was quite happy to use it. And yet... I think you're right. I think it's a lot of time and it's just you have to push through it each time you feel it and each time yeah. it gets a little bit easier. Yeah, I I don't think there's a single performer out there that isn't a neurotic mess, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, uh, and I think that what happens is people mistake the confidence they see on camera or the confidence they hear on radio to think that actually that performer is this humongously egotistical person. Yes, Let's face it, we all do we we do what we do for a living because we like people watching us. Exactly. Yeah. Us, right? We love attention. <laughs> we're a, we're attention seeking annoying brats. That's essentially <laughs> what a performer is. And we are. I mean, that's are, I yeah. am anyway. I'm I'm only talking about myself on this one. But no, we are. We all demand attention. If you get fifteen performers in a room, oh, it's horrific. Because <laughs> <laughs> there'll be one trying to be out out funny the other one, who'll out funny the next one, and they'll all try and be vying it's almost trying to become alpha male yeah. or alpha alpha in this room and, and the reality is we're all so insecure we need to feel like we are the most important and do you think that's why we go we lean towards this type of career deep down because of that insecurity maybe not completely but elements maybe yeah perhaps and I also you know it's, it's also to be in this in this business that we're in you have to be very thick-skinned yeah because it's a lot of rejection if you look at it that way it's a lot of rejection it's also a lot of people criticizing or having an opinion on who you are and what you're doing so it's a lot of that you're facing 
But to be a good actor, for example, you have to be really sensitive. <laughs> so actually, sensitive and thick skin, they don't often marry up very well. They're polar opposites. They are. I, the whole thing fascinates me because, like you say, I, the amount of people that I have assumed, and I do feel like, actually, the more you can see someone maybe overcompensate, hmm. the more self-doubt they are struggling with and insecurities that they are struggling with because it's like they're trying harder. I think, if anything, prove it to themselves as well. Yeah, I think that if you were to meet any, any presenter and chat to them in a group of people they would be probably quite dominant, domineering, try to be anyway. They they might be relaxed, but they would certainly be in control of or try to be in control of the group. If you then had a one-to-one with that person, say five minutes in, their character would completely change and they would become more relaxed, less less about themselves, might even ask you how you are, you know? So it's, it's, I think it's really interesting that, that the character changes from a group of people to one to, to a one-to-one. It's funny you were saying about your interview. I remember I did an interview, to about self-doubt actually and, and nerves. I did an interview with a guy called Dean Holdsworth. The first time I interviewed him, I'd seen him playing for Bolton Wanderers and Wimbledon in the 90s in the Premier League. And he was the manager of Aldershot Town. And I was brought in to do this little documentary thing with Aldershot Town. And I had to interview Dean. And this is a guy I'd watched on TV banging in the goals for Bolton and banging in the goals for Wimbledon. And, you know, and I couldn't say his name. (laughs) I was so green as a presenter. I was really new to it. I think I felt I knew exactly what I was doing and no one could teach me anything. I was really, you know, I was incredible. (laughs) Obviously, I wasn't. And still am not. But there you go. But. I sat next to Dean when the cameras rolled and I couldn't say his name. I kept calling him Dean's Holdsworth. Sorry, (laughs) Dean's Holdsworth. Sorry. Hi, Dean's Holds. I'm with Dean's Holds. And I had to stop, pause, properly collect my thoughts so I could even say Dean Holdsworth. And as soon as I said it and the interview started, it was fine. But I thought, what? I can't even say this guy's name. If I can't say his name, how am I going to interview him? And I was really intimidated by him. Because I'd seen him on TV and I, and he was the manager of this, this football club that, I, prese- uh, that I, I supported. Yeah. And I just, yeah, and, and that was a, an early example of self-doubt that I've managed to eradicate now. And luckily over the years, I've worked with and interviewed some humongous names in sports and daytime TV. Once you realise that everyone drinks and eats and does other things in the same way as each other you know it's it's quite simple everyone's exactly the same and so if they're a huge celebrity they're probably not actually that much of a pain they are quite nice people to get to where they've got to to get to where they've got to yeah and you also find that generally the bigger the name the less of a diva they are yeah well because again people want to work with them they'll give them more opportunities and I think a really good thing that I tried to remember is that someone may be just as nervous. They might be a really big name, but they might still be just as nervous as you are about what you're going to ask. They'll be having their own things. I think Mm. self-doubt comes quite often when we focus so much on ourselves. Whereas if we look at the bigger picture and look at everybody else, it can calm it down because you're like, well, like you said, we eat the same, we drink the same. It's not that big a deal. It's as soon as we start criticising and you spiral so quickly. Yeah, but also if you're an interviewer, Mm -hmm. so if you're hosting, I mean, you're you're doing a cracking job right now, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I don't know about the interviewees like but the interviewer's doing a very good job but if you're the interviewer you'll know the questions or you have an idea of where you want the interview to go 
And you're only really asking questions that the interviewee will know the answers to. Because if you're interviewing somebody about themselves, well, they know about themselves. So they don't need to worry as long as you're not going to go down the, the dark track of when they had an affair with that topless model you know <laughs> that's that's the only thing they might and so you know as long as you've agreed that you're not going to go down that route to start with or that when you do you're not trying to throw them under a bus then it's okay and you have I think quite quickly when you work with people you assume a relationship a trust relationship with each other that you're not intentionally going to throw each other under that bus Yes, definitely. And I think another big part, particularly in this industry, but I think it could spill over into, especially in sports, um, I mean, social media in itself is kind of an industry now, but mm. your our appearance and self-doubt, do you think they have an impact on each other? Yeah, I think they do. And it goes back to, I think, if, when we were talking about self-doubt with celebrities or non-celebrities, anybody who's really on, on TV or radio, and just because you're on radio doesn't or TV doesn't mean you're a celebrity in any way, you know. I think that people have this this neurotic nature where we just don't like ourselves. And I think social media, the way it is now, the Instagram world now, has just really, really perpetuated this and makes it really everyone is so concerned about what they look like. And there's so many apps out there that you can airbrush your face and remove that pimple and make sure there's no cellulite on your legs or whatever it happens to be. And we all know that the world isn't like that. And yet we seem to think the world is like that. So when we go on TV or we, we know we're going to be in a place where people are going to see us, I think we suddenly then have this doubt of, oh my God, am I going to actually, am I going to look right? Am I going to sound right? Am I going to, and people are going to take one look at me and think, oh, what the hell are they on stage for? They shouldn't be there, you know? And I think that we all have that. But I also think everybody has that. I think that everybody has this image, this body image. And I certainly suffer from a negative body image. And um, it's something that I fought and fought and fought over the years to varying degrees of success. I was a bit of a chubster when I was in my late teens. You know, <laughs> I thought I was this muscle bound thing, but I was a bit chubby. And then when I went off to Butlins, I didn't eat very much and was always working out in the gym. And I dropped like three stone. I was about I think I was about 12 and a half, 13 stone. And I dropped down. And when I went back home, I was quite skeletal and my eyes were sunk and I was very very bony and I think had I gone to a doctor I'd have been diagnosed as anorexic wow almost almost certainly I would have been from when I then started acting and I think this became part of me and I see photos I've seen photographs of myself from when I was late teens uh, probably early 20s and you can see like all the bones across my chest you know it was that extreme I was quite very very thin but I didn't think I was I thought I was fat and so that would fall into the anorexic category. Now, I've never been diagnosed as that. Right. And I am not in that, in any way near that position anymore. But I do have people even today telling me that I have body dysmorphia, you know, that I think I'm a lot bigger than I am. Yeah. So I think it's something that carries, that carries along. But people are, if you're on screen, you can't hide away from the fact that you don't like that bit of your neck or you don't like your ears or you, whatever it happens to be. But it's there all the time. And I think everybody on this earth has got something about themselves that they do not like. Yeah. They really, really hate. I agree with you. And I think, how, so obviously, how have you found, what tips would you say to somebody that is really struggling with letting their appearance create this doubt about themselves mm. what have you told yourself or what's helped you I think well that's a weird one because I I still to some degree have it you know right. I still to some degree have this where I 
sometimes don't like a pic. I, if I see a picture of me, I don't like it. I don't like smiley pictures of myself because I think my face looks fat or something, you know. Uh, and yet, which sounds crazy it, to me because you are not fat in the slightest. No, no, and I know that, and I know the reality. And I actually had a photo shoot, a new promo photo shoot done two days ago, and I was the photos came back, and I thought, oh god, I love these pictures. They're great. There's some of them I don't. Some of them think, oh, it looks like I've got a belly sticking out there, and you know. So there's it just it falls into your own neuroses and your own hang-ups and I think that the reality is I know that I'm not fat (laughs) so I know that and I also know that if I really really wanted if I was if I really thought I was fat I could go on a diet (laughs) I I could do something about it and so I do watch what I eat Um, I'm, I'm quite careful to some points but I also eat a lot of sweets I'm such a sweet tooth person love cakes you know yeah so I think that everything in moderation is a really, really good way to be. If you're going to go and have a bit of cake, do it on a day where you're going to the gym. Just try and tie it in. If you're going to be sitting down working all day on a computer and you're not walking around and stuff like that, maybe only have one biscuit. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? I just, that's my mindset. If I know I'm going to be really active on, on a particular day, that day is the day I can have cake. Well, I think that's really good advice. Also, (laughs) I mean, you're probably getting away with quite a lot of cake right now, aren't you? Because you're running the marathon. Yeah, and I um, I walked because of this because of COVID nineteen because of coronavirus. I live in Fulham, and I had this. I went to do a consultation to do a new voiceover yesterday. So I walked into Soho, and that's four point five miles. So I did a six and a half k run, then walked. For, I had a shower, obviously, then, <laughs> <laughs> then, then showed up at a, at a voiceover just dripping sweat. No, then, then had a shower, then walked four and a half miles to the voiceover place, walked about three miles back, then got a Boris bike and cycled the rest of it. You know, I, I generally am quite an active person. So running the marathon or doing any challenge, and the marathon is definitely a challenge. I've always wanted to run the marathon never got a place on it and last year I thought right no matter what if I don't get a ballot place I'm going to get a charity place because I need a challenge I need something to keep me motivated to keep me getting in the gym or going for a run or being active so I always have something in the diary whether it's a marathon or a tough mudder or any of those things Spartan run or whatever I have one of these every three or four months in the diary so that I can never really drop off. Fitness can never really fall away. That's a really good idea. I've found that definitely. Even if it's the, um, you can do like the 30 miles for 30 days, which you can walk, Mm. run, whatever, but it keeps you accountable and it keeps that awareness in your head of, because it's so easy to forget to do the things that help. And exercise is really good for self-doubt because it's not even about necessarily just how you look. It's also the way it makes you feel. And if you accomplish a difficult workout, you feel so proud of yourself and it gives you a massive confidence boost that is absolutely right and I also think that people forget about sport you know and the reality is I do a lot of sport you know I I run a lot I always have done because of my career have never really allowed myself to get bigger I'd love to eat cake every day I'd love to eat sweets all the time I'd love to get large you know (laughs) it'd be just (laughs) fantastic but at the same time I know that I wouldn't like myself in that in that way and when I talk to people about doing sport it's not about how much you do and I think that people who think well I'm I'm really I'm really overweight I'm really unfit the the end goal of being thin is too far away it's like starting a career as a as a presenter and saying I you know I want to be on I don't know this morning or the one show or whatever your end goal is formula 1 in a year. Yeah. Now you're not going to do that in a year. But if you can say I want to land one job 
you know, in the next three months, or I want to make sure I'm walking 10,000 steps four days a week. Yeah. If you do that, then you're, you're giving yourself achievable goals. And I think that is the way to do it. Don't try and drop five stone. Just do a bit, a bit of exercise. Go for a 20 minute walk. Then see if you can run for 20 minutes or see if you can run and walk for 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And build it up. And then before you know it, the weight will naturally start to come off. You'll feel better because it's coming off. You'll feel like you're achieving things. And it's small, it's small progressive steps. And before you know it, you've achieved what you want to achieve. And that is where I am with the marathon. Like the marathon training schedule, 16 weeks long. And it's horrible. <laughs> if I look through the pages of what I've got coming up, it's horrible. But if you look at it in each day, you've got a 6K run one day, an 8K, an extra 12, then a 16, then a 21, you know what I mean? And if you just do it day by day, at the end of each week, you've done 50K or yep. and you're well en route to doing a London marathon. I've done six, maybe seven half marathons since the end of January, just from the Farnborough half marathon, the London half marathon and training runs. That's and incredible. Well done you. Well, if anybody, and these are just me going out, four of them, five of them have just been me going out and running because I have to cover the distance. And it's something that I don't think I was ever going to be able to do. Half marathon, you know, 21 and a half K, 13 miles. Could I really have thought I could run that distance? No. But then once you've got to 10 K, you can do 11. And once you've done 11, you can do 12. You know, and you yeah. just, it, it just adds a bit. And before you know it, you've done this distance and everyone's going, God, that's amazing. And you're really blasé about it. Going, no, it's all right. I've got a 30k <laughs> coming up. I'm nervous about that one. But it's funny, isn't it? And, it, and if, you, if, you, if you apply that logic to everything, small steps, yes. and you'll get there. And I think that is how you overcome, for me, self-doubt, body image, probably. Yep. All these different things, I think, can be done with being a little bit kinder to yourself and giving yourself something where you can achieve it. Exactly. I think if you set the goal, like you were saying, you say, I want to be on this morning next year or whatever it is like that. If you, you will overwhelm yourself when you have your first setback, that will completely derail you or it does me. So if I aim for something that I'm a bit too ambitious as in I'm expecting it too quickly, I'm more likely to stop. Whereas if I say, I just want to do a 10 minute workout today and I want to do that five days a week, that feels so much more achievable and it feels easier. So you're much more willing. If you make it feel difficult, you're automatically going to start talking yourself out of it. So it's so, like, what you're saying makes so much sense. Little and often... What's your, yeah, what's your dream job then? My dream job? Now I'm going to go and say it. it, it for years, I haven't... Mm. I, lately, I've been focusing very much on the day. But at the beginning, it's this morning. It is. Right, okay. I don't know whether it's just as a correspondent, but I what I love about this morning is the way they will talk about really serious topics that help people but they also have a laugh and have fun and I feel like they mix it all really well. And just that style of show, yeah. I just, to me, I, I think I would absolutely love it. But again, that's that top goal. That's the top shelf goal. So at the moment, I'm doing my little steps. <laughs> but that's good, you see, because you know where you want to go. So you have an idea of it, but you also know that, that is the, that's the end goal. But along the way, there are a lot of different things you have to hit. So for example, this morning, they will use experts. They use experts on everything. So if you become an expert in something, then you, and you get a little profile in that thing, then you've got a chance of getting on this morning as an expert. And then who knows where it goes, you know? Exactly. So yeah, my dream job, I think, would be something like Top Gear or, or the Grand Tour. Now, I don't think... Um, I'm going to be able to kick Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond or James May off of the Grand Tour. Um, you know, but Top Gear's open. I mean, they've been making some changes on Top Gear over they, the last they few years. Have, they have, yeah. But they've gone down the whole Paddy McGuinness and, uh, you know, Freddie Flintoff 
uh, route. And so they've gone for a more entertainment-led show, and I think they're quite settled. They've done quite a good job, those the three guys in there now. I quite like that lineup. Um, and so that sort of job's gone. But a car, fun, car-y sort of show would be quite nice, a travel-y, fun, car-y sort of show, you know? Yeah. So I, I have these ideas of where I'd like to be. Um, I don't quite know how to get there, but then I have little steps on the way. of like, I just need to work a bit of this, and I want to do a bit of that. And, but your it, dream show could not be created yet. I mean, something on that level well, yeah. of that thing, it might yet to yet to well, be. That's the other thing. And also, we are in a business where we rely on our create creativity. If you're not, you're doing a podcast. I've got a podcast. You know, these are things that, that you don't have to. <laughs> you're yeah. doing a podcast because you want to. And, and you've got a podcast. It's out there and people are listening to it and hopefully in, uh, enjoying this episode <laughs> as well. <laughs> no, I've, I've... <laughs> but I think that you can do things to help yourself. You can in this industry, this business of, of show, you can do things to help yourself. What you don't want to do is wait for your agent to call or the job to come up. You need to chase the job. And I use things like LinkedIn a lot. Always connect with people on LinkedIn. If there's a TV show I like, I'll find out who the producer is, who the editor is, who's a, who the camera crew are. And, you know, I go on to LinkedIn and I might connect with them. And I'm fortunate that I have quite a, a big web now of of contacts you say fortunate but you've you've put the hard work in you've created that yeah but I mean fortunate in that the the jobs and the roles and the opportunities have come their way there's an old saying of be nice to people on the way up because you'll meet them on the way down very true and I think in this world it's a very small business show business presenting acting whatever it's all very very small everybody knows everybody and if you don't wind anybody up if you don't annoy people if you're a safe pair of hands and you're good at what you do and then you'll get a lot further than if you're a massive diva pain that can't be depended upon, easy to say. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But a lot of people go, oh, they're so lucky that, you know, they got that. But quite often they've created their own luck. It's not just fallen in their lap. You have to keep Mm. and you have to be consistent. And you like you say, you can't let the rejection take you down. You might need a day. You might need a day off to sort of get over maybe a particular rejection, but don't let it stop you. Um, How do you deal with rejection? How do I deal with rejection? Um, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and then a run. <laughs> yeah. No, I um, small rejections now. They used to bother me a lot. They don't now. I used to take everything far more personally than I do mm. now. And I used to think it was always about me. I'm not doing something good enough. Whereas I've realized nine times out of ten, they've already got an idea of who they want. And it's not personal. It's just you don't fit that description. You don't fit the type of personality they need. And that's okay. If it's a big rejection... I like to give myself a little bit of time. So if it's, there is an experience I had recently where I was caught completely off guard and something that felt like a bit of a slap in the face and a bit unfair. And the way I dealt with it was I had a couple of days just to myself, not to feel sorry for yourself, but just to feel whatever it is you're feeling about it. And then think, right, how can I channel this constructively? What can I do to make the best outcome of the situation? But I think never act on the initial rejection. Give yourself that time to process it because you could do something that would make it far worse or just not have your best interests at heart. Take that time to really think about what's happened and can you turn it into a positive. And nine times out of ten, I find the biggest rejections lead to something better. Yeah, there is that whole, I'm not a big fate person. Okay, that's (laughs) where we're probably quite different. (laughs) Yeah, but but some people, it's it's a tricky one because I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, So (laughs) people can, in my opinion, believe what they want as long as they're not harming anyone, right? they yeah, can believe what they want. And if it helps you get through whatever it is you're going through, great. So it doesn't, it doesn't have any impact on me, whether someone is, believes in such and such a God or 
fate or whatever it happens to be doesn't yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have any impact on me whatsoever but if they get a comfort from it that is fantastic and i think that should be embraced and i think that should be promoted right? i think that's a really healthy thing to have when people say to me ah oh, you know that didn't happen because something better is coming along i want to poke them in the eye <laughs> right? because because it's covid19 coronavirus has come along and it decimated my presenting career this year absolutely wiped it out i had so many fantastic jobs lined up. I was going to be traveling the world. I was going to be doing the World Pentathlon Championships. I was going to be going to Bermuda to do oh, the, the Jet yeah. Suit Race Series. I was off to Salzburg loads of times to do stuff for Red for Red Bull. And that, you know, some of the jobs have come back. So I am still going to Salzburg doing stuff for Red Bull TV. Um, and the job in Bermuda is still likely to go ahead. But things like Le Mans, that was supposed to happen. And that won't be happening for me because... They've moved the dates, but the job has now changed because of it. That was one of those things. And when those jobs got cancelled, people were saying to me, oh, don't worry, but they'll all come back. They will come back. And the reality is they might come back, but they will come back at the same time. So you can't do all of them, right? So you lost opportunity. And that one's really hard for me because that one I didn't, I knew that it was going to impact that took a few days to, to get over, really, that I'd lost these great opportunities. So how did you handle that once you say... Badly, okay. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, um, I, I was a bit quiet, a bit grumpy for a few days. I then had to just tell myself, well, hopefully they'll come back. Hopefully these jobs will start up again at some point. And the, you haven't been cancelled because they don't want you. The production company still want you, but the job isn't there. That's kind of where I had to go with it. The opportunity was a real such a painful thing to take the fact that the opportunities are gone these great jobs are gone you know you you've lost your job for this horrific situation of which people are going through so much that's worse yeah you've lost a bit of a job that is it putting it in perspective Um, a little bit sometimes very much very much putting it in perspective that was the only way I think I could have dealt with it and it does sound really really I think a bit oh poor you 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 know you lost a job well people have lost their lives you know and that is the reality of it I lost a job people have lost their lives and their families and I think that is the reality it's very it's a it's a tricky thing because we're all so selfish I think (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) we all want the world we want to take it and we we don't like it when suddenly something stops us from having that things that go our that we way we've got yeah I think what you were saying about people having beliefs and when something really bad oh, yes, just happened and you like you said you want to poke them in the eye if they're like don't worry I totally understand what you're saying because I'm someone that I do quite believe everything happens for a reason but I do also believe that there is a time and a place to say things like that like you might be thinking mm. it internally but if someone has just had a big blow something that's really upset them or really annoyed them just let them feel what they're feeling and say it to them when they've processed it when they when they're a lot more accepting of what's happened but if like you say you've just been found out you've lost one of these jobs that you were so looking forward to and someone says don't worry about it it's it's not the right thing to say I think it's all about the timing also don't push the feeling away so if you're it's a rejection that again is so many people are having their own form of rejection if you want to put it this year some people you know they haven't been able to have their weddings they haven't all of that mm. sort of thing it's looking at it and going just let me be for a day let me feel sorry for myself for a day and I'll snap out of it I just need to feel it first because if you try and avoid it it will build up yeah and I think everyone is so conscious of well I think it all comes back to social media you know I think everyone thinks that everyone's having a great time and everyone's life is better than theirs and it's not it's you know, not. everyone's everyone's struggling everyone's having tough times on my social media I don't really talk about family there's things I don't talk about on my social media. I don't put in my personal stuff. It's professional. Right. You know, it's work, work, work. 
Every now and then it might be, I'm working at my brother's. But I don't go into huge detail about what I'm up to, who X, Y, and Z is in the picture or anything like this. I quite like being a bit more private, but one thing that I haven't put out on social media because it doesn't, it's not important to anybody else, is my life. But I had two grandparents at the start of coronavirus. I now left over, I now have none. They both died during coronavirus. Oh, my granddad died that. of coronavirus. And my stepdad's mum died on the same day as my granddad's funeral. And where well, it was it was horrible. It was, you know, it is horrible. It's still this weird situation where I'm gonna at some point be able to go to a care home to see my granddad. But of course, there is no granddad to go and see. So um I went to his funeral. It was a very bizarre situation because you go into a room with 10 of your family, but you're sitting separate from each other. And at the end of it, you go home. So you don't really feel like you've had that morning time. And it's almost like I could probably go and visit my granddad. Oh, no, no, I can't. So I, I don't present the truth on my social media. So I'm just as guilty as an ex person. But I think then everybody's of guilty that, of that. I think exactly, every single I think, person. Yeah. And therefore, when people are struggling, everyone thinks they're on their own struggling and the reality is we're not we're all struggling on this rock together really yeah. or we should be struggling on this rock together I, I don't know what the future is of social media i don't know whether the youth of today and i hope the youth of today are smarter than the current <laughs> lot like my lot <laughs> and you're you're younger than me so i won't put your lot in my <laughs> lot but um you know we we grew up before social media i grew up before social media i should say and so i saw this this thing come to life and the way it turned facebook turned to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing and you could see people becoming slowly and slowly less honest. Yes. And yet and we that... all know it. And it's exactly what mm. you said at the beginning, isn't it? We know that most people are lying. I mean, how many people do you know that they've had a big argument with their other half, but the next day they post a picture, you're the love of my life, I love you so much. And you're like, oh, you're not thinking yeah. that right now. I know do you're you know, not. I think, oh, trouble at mill. Whenever <laughs> I see... <laughs> I do. Whenever I see a gush... I'm not a gushing person on, on social media. I'm not... I don't put loving things you know, to my other half on my social media. And the reason is, if I want to say something nice to her, I'll say it to her. Exactly, right? yeah. And, and I, if I see somebody being overly nice to their partner on Facebook or something, I honestly think, well, oh, they've had a massive row <laughs> there on the rocks. And there was, I won't mention names, it's somebody you won't know. And it's, there was a guy on his, on his Facebook and he put on his Facebook saying, um, good luck at the dentist today, my darling. I know you've been struggling so much and uh, it'll be so much better afterwards i love you so much kiss 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 or something yeah. and i originally and as soon as i thought i thought well, that's a strange thing why don't you just text her or phone her or tell her that exactly and then about well, I don't know, months passed two months passed something like that and i looked at the facebook thing it just came up on my wall well that's funny he's not there's no picture of her on oh, he must have changed it so i did a bit of you know stalking as you do <laughs> and they weren't together anymore and i just thought ah well i was right when i <laughs> When I thought trouble at mill, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I do think yeah people who who use social media. I also I don't really understand and I, I, forgive me if you've ever done this. I don't don't know if you have, but people who are very vague on Facebook because they want a response, uh, or people who put loving messages to their dead grandparent. I mean, unless their dead grandparents got Facebook, what's the point? No, I'm completely with you there. I use I do use social media a lot. I'll do the odd selfie. I've done the odd, not gushy yeah. post, but so I'm on like certain lines, but I struggle with, like you say, if someone's, I think, I think, I think for me, death is quite a private thing. So I think mm. that's why I wouldn't, 
And no, but the vague thing, or when someone, they tag themselves like a hospital. So everyone goes, what's wrong? Oh, I'll private message you. Well, if you're going to private message them, just private message them. Don't let the whole world know and go, but I can't tell anyone. Because... Yeah, it's... (laughs) Yeah. Look, I'm really... I I really care about this person. I'm going to message them privately and they're going to say, yes, that's lovely because they know me so well. It's that... It is so weird. It's so demonstrative. It's so showy, isn't it? And it doesn't need to be that. And... Oh, vague, vague booking is what it used to be called. I, I hate I've it. I've never heard you know, that. Fingers crossed for good news. And you're like, well, yeah, you're not going to hope for bad news, are you? <laughs> so, you know, but it doesn't tell you what it is. And somebody goes, oh, what's it about? And they say, can't tell you or I'll DM you, like you yeah. say. And you think, if it's that private, just leave it off your Facebook. Exactly. Just, oh, the amount of people I've muted on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I do a two strikes and you're out thing, really. Two people have two strikes. One second, one done. They're muted. I think oh, that's a very good idea. And also because they, you're unnecessarily annoying yourself because if you keep yeah. seeing it, you, you don't need to deal with it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being so open and sharing all of your thoughts about all of this because I think it's really insightful and I've learned a lot today. I've got one more question for you and I just would oh, love God. to know. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself with regards to self-doubt when you started out your presenting career? What have you learned? What's the big thing you would love your younger self to know? So if I could go back and talk to a younger Bryn, um, I don't think he'd listen. To start with. <laughs> he was quite an obnoxious git. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think I would say relax. It will be all right. Yeah, I, I, there's not a lot of advice that I think I'd have listened to but I think the thing I've learned over the years is people don't care about you in the same way you care about you I love that that is so, so true so therefore you could have the biggest secret but unless it affects somebody directly they don't care they really couldn't give a job so therefore it doesn't really matter my old saying that I still use today What's the worst that could happen? That's great. Well, thank you so much. And obviously, I will put a link for your marathon page, if you like, down at the bottom so people can go and check that out. And you were chatting about your podcast. So Mm-mm. what is the name of your podcast and where can people find it? My podcast is called It's All About Dot 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 Me. Uh, it's not about me, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing. It's all, And it features loads of guests. So I, I, I interview sports stars tv people about their lives i found out some really really fun things actually you know big brother winner craig phillips the first ever big brother winner found out what bizarre pets he had when he was a kid and i found out from a footballer what happened before he signed a contract at a football club and uh, it was a very very unusual story so i found these things out so if you like unusual uh, stories and you want to get to know people there's the podcast you can find it via my website you can find it via my instagram you can find it via any well-known podcast provider (laughs) there you go and the marathon yeah if you fancy um just chucking a couple of quid to the sponsorship page that'd be great it's a i'm running for a charity called victor for um visually impaired people and it's a they do fantastic work so yeah great i'll make sure all of the links for that are on the description of this podcast so if you want to check them out just head to the description link and again Bryn, just thank you so much no it's been an absolute privilege thank you very much indeed as well i've loved it